All right, you were. Wait a minute. Uh, how do you say your name, Ayub? Ayub. Ayub, okay. Uh, Ayub, you were asking me about uh, the particular hindrance uh, that is known as uh, sloth and torpor, which could actually be talked of as tiredness and sleepiness or lack of energy, lack of uh, resolve, in fact. Um uh, this um, is actually a hindrance, uh, but it's not necessarily just a, a hindrance in the classical sense of what the Buddha is teaching, but that kind of mentality is a hindrance to any job that you would have, or even to go to town, okay? And it has the, uh, the quality of, oh, well, why bother, in the sense that everything is a bother everything and so it has also the quality of um, ill will in it in the sense that I'm I'm too tired to do blah 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 you see alright and so we're using now the tiredness as um, an excuse when in fact there's several things that could be going on with that generally I would say that uh, it's remarkable uh, how uh, much our breathing has to do with uh, these mental states. And that most of the time when people are practicing what is referred to as meditation generally in the West, that meditation has to do with um, sitting in a particular posture, doing something uh, with cross-legged and arms folded or hands uh, put uh, aside, eyes closed, and just sitting there in silence. Uh, and that they have then, when they see people do this and then uh, doing it themselves, they get the idea that, oh, we're going in deep into meditation, right? And they see that, that that's some sort of goal to go deep into meditation. Generally, what people happen with that, though, is, is that because they're sitting there doing nothing uh, in physical activity, and also they're not really particularly mindful of what's happening, then their body begins to slur slouch a little bit. They're not... Uh, breathing it uh, because they're not paying attention to the breath and not, not controlling the breath because a lot of the Western meditation says just to watch the breath rather than controlling it. And yeah. that doesn't work too well. Yeah, I noticed that too. I could never just watch the breath. I'd automatically get into it. It wouldn't... You have to. That's yeah. the whole point. The Buddha was very clear on that. I do not know where this... Uh, having no skin in the game kind of meditation ever came from. But if, in fact, we are practicing correctly with Anapanasati, that means that we are intentionally taking long, deep breaths and intentionally taking long out-breaths. Long, deep in-breath and long, deep out-breath means that we're no longer breathing shallowly 
quickly the way that we normally do. Now we're going to breathe a little bit deeper and a little slower so that we're going to be breathing. Normally they say people breathe at about 20 breaths a minute, which is about a breath every three seconds. I couldn't possibly breathe that fast. That would be too much work because of all of the years of slowing down the breathing. So uh, a better place would be uh, we can actually start registering or monitoring that by counting. And so we could count one, one of the counts is four, four, two. If you counted four on the in breath, four on the out breath, and then wait two, then that's a count of 10. That means that at count of 10, we're down to in the neighborhood of six breaths a minute. That's remarkably different than the, than the rapid breathing. So going from six down to five, down to four, down to even three breaths a minute is quite possible once we can get it down to about six breaths a minute. Okay, so that means that we can go to um, uh, a five, five, two, and a 552 five, is going to be 12, which uh, uh, in 12 seconds, that means now we're down to five breaths a minute. Okay. And then we can go down to a 663. And a 663 then um, is taking us uh, to about 15, which means now we're down to about four breaths a minute. Okay. Right. And then the ultimate would be 884. So that you count eight on the in-breath, eight on the out-breath, and then four between. Now that's a count of 20, which means now we're down to about three breaths a minute. That one is sufficient. That, that's about as far as you ever would want to go. But we don't need to do this counting so much. The only reason that I'm talking about the counting is because that's an easy way for you to find out what rate of breathing that you're at so that we can actually, while we're counting, that's actually, each count word is, is part of mindfulness. And so as we're breathing and counting, we're actually making the breath a long, deep in-breath or a long, deep out-breath. If we have that kind of breathing, that means now the body is not going to be uh, starved of oxygen and shutting down. It's going to be exactly the opposite of that. It's going to become tingly alive. It's going to become alert. The tingleness that people talk about in reference to the pity is actually just the tingling that will happen naturally when the body is completely oxygenating and energized. And we sure. feel vibrantly alive. We feel tingly alive when we've got enough oxygen. And so this, in that regard, the breathing is um, directly connected with this hindrance of sloth and torpor to where the sloth and torpor or the tiredness and the sleepiness um, and the uh, why bother attitude then is directly opposite of that vibrantly alive, tingly alive feeling. So one is shutting down, the other one is coming up. And that both of them, um, let us say that the, that the hindrance of the sloth and torpor really um, <clears throat> should become a uh, a wake up call itself.
that when you begin to feel tired, that means that, oh, I need to go back and pay a particular attention to the breathing. Mm. And that I have to put in attention to it or awareness uh, that has energy or effort put into it. An example would be um, playing video games. Uh, in fact, the expression is to have skin in the game. Now, normally to have skin in the game, another uh, phrase like that was having a dog in the fight. Yeah, I've heard that before. Okay. You probably heard, because uh, um, I've had a, a lawyer that was involved with a, uh, a, a what uh, dispute, a uh, temple dispute in uh, North Carolina. And the lawyer... Uh, said to the monks who were living at this what, and their housing was in dispute. And yet because he could only see the money, who's got the money, uh, who's got financial interest in it, we're just guests in this house. And so he said to the monks, you don't have any skin in the game. You don't have a dog in the fight. Right? I don't think that he had his mind on straight. He couldn't see that, in fact, the monks were living there. They were about to live, lose their housing. And he says they don't have a dog in the fight. They don't have skin in the game. Hmm, that's interesting. But this is the point. Another one would be that um, uh, a, a video game. That if you're playing a video game, you've got your hand on the mouse, you've got the headphones on or whatever, and that you're playing the game, you'll learn that game quicker than if you're uh, just watching somebody else play the video game. Yeah. Little mouse movements that he makes, you may not detect. You may not know what he's doing. You can't follow everything. And not only that, but the, the guy who's watching someone else play the video game is easily distracted. Someone can call his name and he'll turn away and go off someplace and come back to the game later. But the guy who's playing the game, nothing's going to distract him. He's in it. Right? Okay, so this is actually then how we're going to be practicing Anapanasati as if we've got skin in the game. Got to pay attention to this, okay? This is what we're doing. This, um, um, uh, let us say it like this. We'll use the word enthusiastic. That we are, uh, that part of what the practice of Anapanasati is, is a skill that is actually not referred to directly as a skill, but is part of the outcome, and that is eagerness or enthusiasm to practice. Many students will say, uh, you know, walking in the door from, uh, uh, from groceries, or maybe they're even already sitting in front of the laptop at home. And then they'll have the thought, maybe I should meditate. Yeah. And then they will have the thought after that, oh, why bother? Yeah. Is that not, in fact, the hindrance right then and there? That as soon as we have sati, I sh maybe I could start meditating right now. Instead, sloth and torpor takes right over immediately. Yeah, it's automatic. Yeah. Yeah, it almost is up there automatic, okay? So this is something that we can start to pay attention to. The sloth and pauper or uh, that why bother attitude can, yeah. uh, can be any place. In fact, you could say that that would be one of the reasons why people would leave a meditation 10-day retreat early. Mm -hmm. 
is because the thoughts start happening, oh, why bother? Yeah, this is too much, or even this this like is doubt, too doubt much, too, yeah. a lot of doubt, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, now, if you think about it like this, that why bother or this is too much is actually as much as an a- of an attitude as it is um, a hindrance. And that the attitude is the attitude of a loser. Yeah. I'm not up to it. Why bother? Oh, I'm too tired to meditate and whatnot like that. Well, guess what? Someone's going to be in a really sad shape if they're too uh, tired to breathe. That's, in fact, very dangerous <laughs> to be in a state that you're too yeah. tired to breathe. <laughs> <Yeah>. And so the, the actual then response to this sloth and torpor or to this uh, uh, um, why bother attitude, this tiredness, is to remember to take a deep breath right then. This is the time to take a deep breath. The tiredness should now be the meditator, the correct practitioner's key. That's the anchor. Tiredness, as soon as I feel tired, the first thing that I should do to respond to that is take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Let's see how that helps. After two or three deep breaths, I don't feel quite so tired. But that actually happens when people wake up in the mornings. That many and, and and as people get older, it happens more and more. The whole point about getting uh, sleep, going to sleep at night, is to get rest and relaxation. So why is it that so many of us wake up tired? Yeah, I wonder the same. I don't. I'm not too sure. I would have to say that that has a whole lot to do with breathing, and that the breathing that you're doing has a lot to do with posture. Oh, so even your sleeping patterns carry through into sleep? I, I thought maybe they would automatically adjust there. I guess not. No, no. In fact, our posture in the bed uh, can prohibit breathing. Uh, when, first, when COVID first started happening last year, before uh, more than a year ago, and people started dying left, right, and center, and they had photos or videos of, of the hospitals, of the... Uh, the wards, I knew immediately what the problem was. I could see immediately why people were dying. Poor posture? Poor posture. Why? Mm. Did I say that? It's because they have them laying in a hospital bed and that the hospital bed, because of the crank or a motor, can be slightly oh. elevated. Yeah, which an means now it's not flat, which means now uh, uh, the, the individual does not have much control over his posture. And when people are laying on their back, that actually collapses the lower back part of the lungs Mm. that are used for diaphragmic breathing. That in fact, um, to be honest with you, I found this out in high school where um, a group of us were uh, teasing each other, um, uh, uh, musicians, about can you lay down and play the trombone? Can you lay down and play the tuba? Can you lay down and play the sousaphone? Can you lay down and play the trumpet? Can you lay down and play the clarinet? And guess what? That uh, The kind of instrument you play, for instance, the trombone, you can't lay down and play the trombone because the back of the trombone is behind your head, so you've got to move over here like that to try to play the trombone. 
the reason I'm saying this is because every student in the little group that we were doing this came to understand that none of us can play our musical instruments while we're laying on our backs. Can't breathe right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, when people are laying in bed, never mind in the hospital, if they're just laying in bed at night, if we're sleeping on our backs, we're not breathing well. If we're also, if we're sleeping on our stomach, which is uh, quite common. Yeah, I've heard that's, that's pretty bad even, for you. That's even worse. Mm -hmm. Because now we got the whole weight of the body yeah. slamming right down on the chest. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you have the to right like pick your lungs up almost. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So that takes more work. And so the breathing is going to be very shallow. This is why the Buddha recommends the lion posture is well known and that the monks in Asia practice it. But in fact, uh, I came to understand this by sleeping on a hard surface. If you sleep on the hard surface on your back, it'll hurt your back. Your back will have pain, especially down in the tailbone area. If you sleep on your stomach, you will be really tired when you're uh, waking up in the morning because of the hard surface. But if you sleep on your side, you can get a good nice rest. But they've known about this for hundreds of years, and yet the sleep manufacturers like uh, uh, ma um, pillows or mattress companies, they don't want you to know any of this. They want people to sleep bad. So they don't uh, buy their mattress. Yeah, here you're not sleeping well. Buy a $5,000 mattress or $400 pillow. Yeah. Right. And in fact, you can sleep quite well on a hard surface. Mm -hmm. All you need is uh, just to spread a cloth out. You can actually sleep on pebbles. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> uh, doing it without a without a pad of some kind. Yeah. But the point is, is that if we are sleeping on our side, then we can breathe naturally during sleep. That the sleep breathing will be better. So if you wake up tired in the morning, before you even get out of bed, you'll know you're tired. Yeah. In fact, you don't want to get out of the bed. In fact, the thought comes, oh, why bother? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> five more minutes. Tired. Yeah, five okay. more minutes, please. Yeah. Right. And so this is a time to start taking some Anapanasati. I would recommend the very first thing, first thing that people do when they wake up, the very first thing before they get out of bed. Maybe I would go so far as to say, maybe the first thing to do is to turn the alarm off, but that's not even necessary. Who cares about the alarm? It's done its job, okay? The very first thing that we should do is start breathing correctly, to start breathing well, to get over onto our side if we're not on the side, and take a deep few breaths and gladden the mind, saying, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Everything's going to be easy. No problems, no worries. This is going to be a nice day. Mm -hmm. And so we start off immediately with Anapanasati. We start off immediately with gladdening the mind, taking a deep breath, and getting ourselves into a good state. Okay, well, guess what? What we're talking about right here, as soon as you wake up in the morning, we're not talking about now laying in bed. We're talking about as soon as you wake up, any time during the day, any time that you remember, any time uh, you have a thought of meditation, mm -hmm. that's the time to take a deep breath and to gladden the mind. Yeah, or any time you notice yourself in a hindrance at all, too, wake up and catch yourself. To wake up and catch yourself and take a deep breath and relax. Yeah. Over and over and over again. 
And so uh, most people in the West think of meditation as only something that you do by going to a particular room or a particular place with a particular sitting cushion and maybe some paraphernalia or some um, icons or some religious goodies there. And some people will have a little ceremony of lighting a candle and incense and all of that kind of stuff. And then they call that meditation, which in fact is really nothing but ritual. So far, the only thing that they've done is ritual. And we don't need to do any rituals at all. What we need to do is take a deep breath. (laughs) And so when you're sitting in front of the laptop, I have had one student say today, oh, I was watching uh, uh, YouTube on the laptop and I had the thought that I should meditate. And then the next thought he had is, oh, why bother? Yeah. Sounds familiar. (laughs) And so he continues to watch the YouTube, enjoying that. But then aside from that are the thoughts of you should go meditate. And so he's having this internal dialogue of meditation while he refuses to go meditate because he wants to watch the video. And that is completely, completely human that we do that kind of thing because we misunderstand Really, what meditation is all about is not about sitting on a cushion in a particular room with icons and that kind of stuff, but really it's remember to take a deep breath. So while we're watching that video, while we're watching the YouTube, we don't have to go, oh, I should meditate. We can start doing it right then and there. Oh, I'm, re- I'm really glad I remembered that I could take a deep breath while I'm watching that video. I'm really glad I can remember that I can uh, feel really good right now while I'm watching that video, that that video is not my boss. Right? This is the way that we begin to practice now is, is that we see any moment throughout the day as an opportunity for practice. And all we have to do is remember. All we have to do is remember. That's funny, because that is, in fact, sati. The anapanasati part of it is is that you have to remember to take a long, deep breath, or it's not going to be a long, deep breath. So how can we remember? Because if you forget, I mean, there's many different possible examples uh, of people who are highly skilled at something, but just at the wrong moment, They have no mindfulness, and so they forget to apply that skill. They have the skill. An example of that recently is a cop, a female cop, that shot someone with a phaser or a taser, and it turned out to be her pistol. Yeah, I heard about that. She had no mindfulness that this was a gun in her hand, right? How could she have missed that? The answer is very simple. She didn't remember to even look to see what kind of weapon she had. She was so deep into the heat of the moment that she had no mindfulness, no waking up. This is the normal human state, that when things get tough uh, and we get going tough, we always do it out of a deep habit, an instinct, instinctual behavior. And we have to wake up out of that instinctual behavior in order to apply the right thing to wake up to be here now. 
So she killed a man because of lack of sati and no other uh, issue. That's enough right there for everyone to recognize, oh, sati really is that important. <laughs> People live and die because they don't remember to do things. And so if you can remember often, and that we will remember often if we have enthusiasm for it, if we really like what we're doing, then that enthusiasm will help the sati pop up so that we can now remember to take a deep breath. Take a deep out breath to relax. And so uh, one of the things then that I would say is for students to uh, not think of meditation as something you do for a long period of time, like 45 minutes or an hour, but something that we practice much shorter periods of time. The human uh, attention span is normally about 20 minutes. And so I would say a meditation of under 20 minutes would be the better meditation, not one longer than 20 minutes. Yeah. And so if we practice 20 minutes, that could be three times a day for an hour. If we practice for 15 minutes, then that means that we could do it four times a day. If we practice for only 10 minutes, then we can do it six times a day. And I would recommend 10 minutes six times a day why? Because within 10 minutes, almost everybody can get themselves into a really, really good state if they're practicing correctly. Taking some deep breaths and say, be here now, and I only have to do this for just a little while. Let me get the very best out of it. And I feel really, really good. And now I can go off and do what I wanted to do. So this is the way that we begin to practice is by having it done often throughout the day. Then guess what? that memory, that sati, starts to develop as a skill so that now sati will come up with, between the meditation sessions. Let's say that I, I meditated at uh, 6.30 in the morning uh, while I was still in bed. And then I meditate for 10 minutes before I go to work. And then I meditate at, uh, uh, for 10 minutes at uh, 10 a.m. break. Well, guess what? From the time that you went to work to the time for that 10-minute break, now Sati will come up a couple of times in that time. Yeah. Then the next 10 minutes will be noon, but there will be times at 11 when we'll wake up and start to having a deep breath or two. So yeah. that we begin to have Sati more often throughout the day. And pretty soon it becomes very often throughout the day. Yeah. Will it eventually oh. turn the tide of the mind? Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. It will turn the tide of the mind by taking the deep breaths, but the tide of the mind also has to be changed in another way, and that is, is that we have to throw out unwholesome thoughts. Yeah, okay, so how does one and actually go about doing that? Because it seems like I can notice there's an unwholesome thought going on saying no, but it doesn't even feel like me saying no does really doesn't do anything. I, or, I don't well, know. In Sutta number 20 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha gives five different levels of how to remove unwholesome thoughts from the mind. Okay. Okay. So that means we now have actually six. Plus what is the sixth that. one? The sixth one is not doing it. And that's the way, that number six way, is the way that most Western meditators practice, is by not doing it. 
by not taking the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind, rather than, than taking them out or removing them, they merely note them. Oh, okay. Thinking that if I note them, then they will disappear. Okay. So, um, one way is the way, the first way, which is the way that I would recommend and the way that I normally teach, is uh, uh, what is actually mentioned in, in the Anapanasati Sutta, uh, and it has a little kicker to it from another sutta. And that other kicker is what the Buddha said when he was figuring this stuff out. While he was sitting under the bow tree and working his way through Paticca Samuppada and, and the, uh, uh, the three watches of the night and the four noble truths and the eightfold noble path, that stuff, when he was working through that, he came across something. And that thing that he came across was the Mara in the mind, and he came across it with the phrase, Aha, I see you, Mara. Okay, now that Aha, I see you, Mara, actually is building enthusiasm. Mm. Okay, Aha, I see that. Now, normally when people meditate, and um, let us say that they're doing the Goenka method, and the Goenka method will say, Never mind, start again. If the mind wanders away from the breath, Never mind, start again. Okay. He doesn't talk about what the mind is doing while it is watching the breath, but if the mind wanders away completely from the breath, then his recommendation is to see that and to come back and start watching the breath again. And he's correct with that. What most people do instead, though, is they'll say, Oh, poor me, oh, wandering mind, oh, I was trying to watch my breath, and it's so hard to do. Well, it's not really so hard to do. What's really hard is to watch the breath while not controlling it. If they are actually controlling the breath, then it's easier to watch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, an example of this. Okay, here's a really good example. If you have a bucket sitting under a spigot or a faucet or a valve for water, and you turn that valve on, and your intention is, is when the bucket gets full, you're going to turn the valve off. It's much more likely for us to wander away from that uh, spigot filling that bucket, thinking about something else, and then we finally catch it when the spigot is actually already overflowing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Because we don't really have the mindfulness. Some people can wait right to the top and then they'll turn it off, and other people will forget. But if you have a hand pump, and you have to pump that pump, and every time that you put that pump, it's a little bit of water goes into that bucket, now you will know when to stop that pumping because you've got skin in the game. You're doing it. If mm -hmm. you're just watching that bucket to fill up, it's easy just to forget about it, and the mind wanders away, and then the bucket overflows. Yeah. This is exactly the same thing in meditation is, is if we're just watching the breath, then the mind will easily wander away. So uh, we're going to actually have to put some effort in this to keep the mind focusing on the breath. And the way that we can do that best is with having wholesome thoughts rather than having monkey mind jumping thoughts and let the mind jump around while we're still watching the breath because very soon the mind is going to jump off into a place to where we're no longer watching the breath. 
but by actually controlling the breath and making sure that it is there, we can also have a little conversation with ourselves that are now all wholesome thoughts about watching the bucket fill up, okay, in the sense of start investigating. Um, is this thought wholesome or not? If I halt, if my thoughts are about the here now, then the thoughts are about my breathing. I can feel the rise of the chest. I can feel the fall. I can feel the breathing. I can feel what the body is doing when it's breathing. It begins to wake up and I can feel the cloth, the touch of the cloth on the shoulder. I can feel the rise. I can feel all kinds of things because now I'm paying attention to what the body is doing. Okay, so this is one way of thinking, is thinking about what's happening right now. Oh, so any thought that wouldn't be considered to be about here and now would be considered unwholesome? I would say that. For the okay. beginner, that's, a, that's the first easy thing for us to understand when we're getting the idea that, first off, wholesome and unwholesome is on a continuum. There's no place where it's, it, there is an automatic for everyone bright and dark line or a line there so that everything on this side is dark and everything on this side is bright. It's not a black and white situation. It's much more so than absolute black is way over here on the bottom and absolute white is way over here on the absolute top and everything is gradations of gray in between. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a better way of thinking about it, because what happens is, is that as your skill of uh, uh, ditti, as your view increases, as your ability to discern things, that means that you're actually, the line that you draw between what is wholesome and unwholesome begins to shift in the direction of the wholesome, so that more and more things that you used to think were wholesome are now you consider them unwholesome. And the things that are really wholesome are very few. Because we're looking in that direction from the very get-go, we can say that, okay, let's talk about the thoughts that are way, way up there. And one of the kinds of thoughts that are way, way up there are the thoughts about what we're doing right here in this moment are very wholesome thoughts, as opposed to thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, thoughts about someone or someplace else that is not right here. An example of that would be that right here in front of me is a cup with coffee, or tea, or water, or whatever. And when I take, uh, when I have the thought of having a drink of water, and the water is right here, I merely grab it, and I'm satisfied immediately. But if I have a thought of enlightenment, and I think enlightenment is way off in the future someplace. Now I have uh, the desire and the want for something I don't have. Yeah. Okay. So what we're talking about now is the, the quality of immediate gratification. That if we can get immediately that which we want, then we will be satisfied. And if we have... Uh, uh, wants or needs for things that are not right here right now then we're instead in a state of want in a state of desire right yeah. and so when in that regard when we say um, the phrase secluded from sensual desire a lot of people will say that that means secluded from sensual 
pleasures, which means all I have to do is to leave the brothel, right? Because now I'm secluded from the sensual pleasure. No, we're not talking about secluding from sensual pleasure. We're talking about secluded from sensual desires. Mm. So even while I'm sitting here, if I have a thought of the brothel, then that's an unwholesome thought because it means that I want to get up from where I am and go to the brothel to get what I want, when in fact I could get what I want right now if I wanted better things. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, the very, very wholesomest thoughts are going to be wholesome thoughts about right here, right now. Another kind of really wholesome thought, in fact, even higher wholesome thoughts, would be the application of the Dhamma right here, right now. Now, one of the things that we can say that, uh, that's so remarkable about the teachings of the Buddha is that the Buddha Dhamma is wholesome. It is not unwholesome to where most religions are unwholesome. Yeah. The reason that they're unwholesome is because uh, the, 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 the story of the religion always ripens in clinging for something that we don't have. Heaven, avoidance of hell, mm-hmm. and all of these other kinds of ideas about it. Okay, and so um, it's the promise of the future, or it's dwelling in what happened way in the past. But, but the Buddha Dhamma is noble, because uh, the Four Noble Truths have always been true. That way back when people had dukkha, way into the future, there will be dukkha. There will be dissatisfaction. So long as there is critical mind and critical thinking, there will always be uh, choosing, this is better than that. And if I choose this is better than that, and I don't have any of this, but I have a whole lot of that, then that means that I'm dissatisfied. But if I come to the point of, of nurturing, which I can say both this and that are okay, now I've got this and that's not here, that's okay. <laughs> because I've got this, and this is good enough. So this is how we begin to practice, is to get the mind in the state where it's free from wanting things. And this is actually about the Dhamma. So we can say then that wholesome thoughts are thoughts about the Dhamma. Okay. And so we can apply the Dhamma in the here now in a wholesome way. And an example of that is when I see, aha, I see you, Mara. That's actually the first noble truth. Dukkha. I can see it. There it is. I want that beer, and there's no beer within five kilometers of here. If I want that beer, I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. The more I want it, the more I suffer. But if I want water, and water is right here, then I'm fine. Okay, so I can see that the reason that I'm unhappy and dissatisfied is not because I need the beer. It's because I want a beer that I don't have. So now we recognize, oh, yeah, I'm okay. That's the second noble truth. And then we can put ourselves right into the third noble truth. And we can say, you know, things are right now, they're good. They're just nice. 
Everything is okay. Everything is fine. Not a worry in the world. No place to go. Nothing to do. And everything in this moment is just fine. Those then would be wholesome thoughts, and those would be wholesome thoughts that would incorporate the third noble truth. Freedom from suffering. Everything's good right now. Everything's fine. No worries, no troubles, no problems, no dukkha, no desire for things I don't have. Okay, so now we can think of that too. This is a very wholesome kind of thought to have, is the thoughts of the third noble truth. This is really nice. Okay, and there's also the practice of Anapanasati of gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. So by adding energy that comes in through the breathing and, and also adding energy through our enthusiasm and the enthusiasm is building because of uh, the benefit that we're getting from practice. And because we're putting in the right effort and whatnot, then our attitude begins to change into the attitude of a winner. The attitude of a lion. Okay. Okay. So we're completely free from those hindrances, especially the hindrances of sloth and torpor, which is in fact the definition of, oh, why bother? It's too much work. Which is the position of the victim. Mm-hmm. Now we're the winner. Now we're the champion. We have a completely opposite attitude. The attitude of can do. The attitude of this is nice and we can do it. And when we get to the point that we recognize it, it doesn't matter how obstructed the mind gets. It doesn't matter how tired or how worried or whatever I get. As soon as I have sati, as soon as I remember, I can come out of that. That's right. It takes that deep breath. Come right out of it. All we need is the sati. And when I have sati, then I know that I can come out of those hindrances, take a deep breath, and come right back to the here now. This is an important step. It is so important that the Buddha calls it the first knowledge on the path. It's the first knowledge that is noble, super mundane, a factor of the path, and not held by ordinary people. Most ordinary people have the victim's position that will wind up them saying, oh, why bother? out of their tiredness and their uh, uh, lack of energy and lack of effort. But with our enthusiasm, with our right noble attitude, that can-do attitude, we come to the position of making the, uh, the internal claim that, hey, man, it doesn't matter what happens in the mind. I can clean that out. I can really do it. I can come back. And what a relief that is. Uh, to know, you know, I don't have to have any worries for the rest of my life. Because any time that I do get worried, I can remember to come out of that worry. That's where the path really kicks in. It kicks in with this newfound attitude that I can do this. The newfound attitude that I can come out of the hindrances, take a deep breath, gladden the mind, and come back into a state of satisfaction and joy. And redouble that confidence. Pali word for that confidence is shraddha mm. or sada. Okay, and shraddha is confidence. It's not faith. 
Yeah, I usually hear it faith as faith. And upon yeah. us, we have uh, the, uh, the strength of the knowledge that's backed up by enthusiasm. And the knowledge is of having done it over and over and over again, so I know I can do it again next time. And so all of this stuff comes together then in the form of now the mind becomes kind of organized and unified in a new way. In the old way that we had it organized, which included unwholesome thoughts, we wound up in grasping, clinging, and selfishness. But now we're organizing the mind around wholesome thoughts. And so now we wind up being not selfish at all, altruistic, having other people at uh, uh, goodwill for other people. It arises naturally, not because it's a rule or a law or something. It's because if I feel really good and somebody comes, just because they come doesn't mean that now I don't feel good anymore. Now I'm going to continue to feel good and I'm going to share my good feelings with them. Mm. That would be real meta. Real meta is sharing your joy. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, how do you like what? What about meta practice? How does one go about? I just yeah. gave it to you. Okay, yeah. there is no such thing as meta practice. Meta is the outcome of correct anapanasati practice. Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Because sitting down, and closing your eyes, and feeling love for people never felt genuine. It felt kind of just right. Because where's the love? How yeah. can you feel love when you haven't got the love? When you when you're full of love. Now you can feel love toward the people. Where's the love? So just telling yourself to love other people may not work. It does for a few. I mean, they can talk with meta thoughts. They can talk themselves into feeling good. They can't do it. I've seen it happen. So I know that it does work. It just doesn't happen often. Yeah. Okay. But it does happen often where people will uh, practice Anapanasati, get themselves into a really, really beautiful state by having the hindrances removed and having the metta uh, flow on the inside. The juices, my isn't this wonderful? My isn't this a nice day? This is third double truth. Got it. Got it nailed. Okay. Once we're in that kind of state, now we can share our joy with others. And that would be then the metta. Because now you're really having the thought, oh, not may all beings be happy or may everyone be happy in the four corners of going off in all directions, especially people I never met and never will. But whether we can see that our world, may all beings be happy, means the beings that are buzzing around, the beings that are knocking on the door, the beings that are laying under my foot, the beings who are talking to me. These are the beings in my world, and when I say may all beings be happy here, I'm talking about those that are in my immediate vicinity. So if someone comes up to me and asks me a question now, may all beings be happy is directed directly at him. Because I want him to be happy because I'm sharing my joy with him. Okay? If we have the idea, may all beings be happy, and we do, in fact, mean all beings, then that means that every little bit of happiness is getting more and more distributed to more and more beings to the point that each being gets only a tiny fraction of my joy. 
But if I can direct my joy to one person who is standing here, then he can get the whole show. <laughs> but may all beings be happy is just part of the attitude. Uh, and we can say it in a better way of saying may all beings be happy, which is kind of far, formal. We can say it in the uh, in reflective uh Let's all uh, get a kick out of this. Let's all be happy. And when here we mean let's all be happy, that means let's, including me, and all means just those around us. Mm, okay. Okay. This is a much better way of looking at it. Because we don't really have any influence. I mean, you can sit and think, may all of the um, uh, CEOs of all the big companies be happy. How many of those CEOs are going to get any benefit from that? Or let us say, may all beings who are actually world leaders, and including Merkel and Johnson and Putin and um, uh, others, may all of those beings who are world leaders and in charge of their co uh, countries, may they be happy? How many of them do you think are going to get any benefit out of my thoughts that way? Not a chance. <laughs> But if Vladimir Putin calls me on the Skype, I want to see that call. <laughs> in broken English, he then can gain benefit from my joy. Yeah. Directly, because I'm directing it directly at him. All right. So this is a way of understanding uh, Meta that let's not make it magical. Let's not put it too broad. Giving my meta too much power. May all beings be happy like I've got all the meta that is needed to make all the beings happy. Don't give me that kind of crap. <laughs> no, let's do something that can be done. If I can make one person smile, that's meta. And in fact, I never, I, the reality, though, is I can't make anybody smile. If you don't want to smile, you won't smile. And it doesn't matter how smiley I get, how many jokes I tell. If I can't get, if, so basically, if I, I can throw enthusiasm all over you, but mm. you've got to pick up that enthusiasm. Otherwise, yeah. it'll just fall off of you. <laughs> You got to have some skin in the game. You got to pick it up. Every one of us has got to do that. Yeah. Okay. And so that's what meta then is, is also is meta is instilling in that person the invitation to pick up on my joy. And you can't do that when it's just out in general, may all beings be happy. Well, I can't get all beings to pay attention to being happy. I can't get them to even focus on it. You can only do that a little bit at a time. Okay, so this is real method, the method that works, the method that actually does something. And that is going to do something because we've got the power behind it, the power of our enthusiasm, the power of our correct practice, the power of our joy, the power of our can-do uh, attitude of a winner. This is how meta can be shared. Only when we have that enthusiasm can our meta be shared with others. And that enthusiasm is actually overflowing 
because we built up and increased that enthusiasm and got it going to get our own mojo going. So our own enthusiasm was what we were working with. Now we just have enthusiasm for the Dhamma that's gotten so much that it overflows. It's kind of like that bucket analogy we used a while ago that now we're not going to turn that faucet off. We're just going to let it overflow. Only this time it's uh, metta, it's uh, uh, joy, satisfaction. That's the stuff that overflows. Because that's what we're building up. Yeah. And so this is a better way of practicing metta, is by having some. And then you can share it with others. Well, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we've gotten something accomplished here today, that you've gotten the idea about putting in the right effort. Mm-hmm. To gladden the mind. Throw yeah. those hindrances out. Have good, wholesome thoughts, one after another after another, so that we're building up the skill. Actually, there's two new skills that we can add to this. One is, is that we can go into this state quickly and easily, and we can only go into this state quickly and easily because we've already developed the skill of each one of these items. So when we get all of these skills together, we can put them together very quickly. Sati comes first, and as soon as Sati comes first, all of the other skills come in. Gladdening the mind, feeling comfortable, feeling relaxed, feeling joyful, and then feeling like a winner. And the mind is sharp. With these uh, um, long, deep in-breaths, the mind gets sharp. It's not dull anymore. And so we can now apply the mind to this wholesome stuff that we've been doing, and then being able to sustain it in the wholesome. That's the state that we want to get into often. And so the skill is to get into this state really easily. And then the skill of sustaining it so that we can stay in that place of wholesomeness all the time. Once we do that, then there'll be things that are worthy of noting. And we can talk about that the next time you call. But right now the job is to note these things enough. How is my sati? How is my investigation? How is my effort? How is my enthusiasm? How is my breathing? Is this long, deep in-breath? Okay. These are the things that are worthy of noting and paying attention to, rather than noting whatever's in the mind. No, we're going to have only certain specific things in the mind. All of them wholesome, all of them working around um, developing these skills. And yep. so when you have the thought, oh, why bother? Catch that. Sati. Aha! I see you. Right then and there. And we do that by taking a deep breath right then and there. And this is how you'll deal with dropping, uh, torpor or how to deal with tiredness is to recognize it. And as soon as you see it, you can throw that out. I don't have to feel that way. I can take a few deep breaths and I can feel good. Yeah. Do you have any questions now about this? Um, no, I'd probably get a lot more questions going when I actually start developing the practice and not, yeah. 
right. and not see it as a chore actually just you know yeah well you let's finish this call now and we'll uh, uh talk to you later cool sounds good thank you glad to see you again you don't have to wait so long next time <laughs> i'll try not to <laughs> all right have a good one all right we'll see you